0: Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are joined by Dr. Susan Weissman. Before I tell you about the doctor, every year my co-host, Bensi, and I go to the YU Book Sale, and we try to look for books that are like diamonds in the rough, something that could inspire us, inspire conversation, and good podcasting. So when we finished reading this book, we were both blown away, and we said, we have to speak to her. This is a must. Because Sefer Hasidim has such an impact on modern Jews in their thinking when it comes to the dead and when it comes to certain beliefs that are seemingly very strange. And as a podcast that focuses on getting back to the fundamentals, we felt it was very important that we have this conversation. So I'm just going to tell you a little bit more of Dr. Weissman. She's the Chair of Judaic Studies and Associate Professor at Lander College for Women, Turo College and University System. Through a detailed analysis of ghost tales in the Ashkenazi pietistic work Sefer Hasidim*, Dr. Weissman documents a major transformation in Jewish attitudes and practices regarding the dead and the afterlife that took place between the rabbinic period and medieval times. She reveals that a huge influx of Germano-Christian beliefs, customs, and fears relating to the dead and the afterlife seeped into medieval Ashkenazi society among both elite and popular groups. In matters of sin, penance, and posthumous punishment, the infiltration of Christian notions was so strong as to affect a radical departure in pietist thinking from rabbinic thought and to spur outright contradiction of Talmudic principles regarding the realm of the hereafter. Although it is primarily a study of the culture of a medieval Jewish enclave, this book demonstrates how seminal beliefs of medieval Christendom and monastic ideals could take root in a society with contrary religious values, even in the realm of doctrinal belief. Without further ado, Dr. Weissman. Thank you for joining the Judaism Demystified podcast. In your book titled Final Judgment and the Dead in Medieval Jewish Thought, you provide a convincing and thorough examination on the book Sefer Hasidim, authored by Rabbi Yehuda Hasid. Before going into the content of your critiques, how important was and is Sefer Hasidim in terms of its influence on Jewish culture? Who was Rabbi Yehuda HaChasid? How accepted was his book at the time? And lastly, how did it influence Ashkenazic Jewry? Do we still feel the influence of its book today?
1: Okay. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm honored to be here. Sefer Hasidim is actually an anonymous book. And the purported author is Rabbi al-Hassid. This is a dispute among scholars. Certainly the ideology behind the book, and that's something that I argue in my book, uh, something that only Rabbi al-Hassid could have written, although there are passages that could have been additions by other people. In other words, the way the book is structured, it's written um, with little individual paragraphs. They were joined together. Uh, at certain points in time, to form manuscripts, so we can't say that every single passage is the work of Yehuda Chassid. But the salient features of the book and the ideology of the group was definitely Yehuda Hasid. and that's what I argue in my book. Who was Yehuda Chassid? He was the main figure, the seminal figure behind the Chassidei Ashkenaz. The Chassidei Ashkenaz was a small group of German Jews living in the 12th to 13th century. And he envisioned a radical, very extreme social religious program for what he intended for all Jewry, but uh, he had actually a very small following during his lifetime. <clears throat> and the he lived in the, um, we don't know exactly when he was born, but he lived in the 12th century and he died 1217. He was born in Spire. His father, Rabbi Shmuel Nechassad, Rev. Samuel the Pious, is considered the first of the movement of the group. And then the family moved to Regensburg. Scholars say the end of the 12th century. Others argue a little bit earlier. And most of his active life was in Regensburg. And his main Talmud, his main student was Rebbe Lezer of Worms, the author of the Rokeach. So these are the three central figures of the Hasid de Ashkenaz, Rebbe Samuel the Pious, his father, Rebbe Judah the Pious, the main figure, and the main student was Rebbe Lezer of Worms. And the main doctrines that they put forth was something called, firstly, the Ritzon Haborei. The Yehuda Chasid said that in addition to the revealed law that we have, both Torah the written law, and Torah Shevach the oral law, there existed an entire other realm of what he termed the will of the creator, its own HaBore, that people didn't know. And only the Hasid Chacham, the pietist master, intuited what this will was. And Sefer Chassidim was written with the intent to tell people what this hidden will of God is. And it involved many chumrot, many stringencies of law, many peculiarities of behavior, a very uh, pietistic kind of behavior. They weren't allowed to look at women. They were to be very cautious about every single aspect of their lives. They had to maximize their physical suffering in this world and minimize their pleasures of this world so they had a very uh, intense uh, religious program and the chassid chacham was the only one who knew it and yet jews were going to be held culpable if they did not follow the ritzon habore and often he speaks about the dreaded punishment after death that the reason why i'm telling you all this in my sefer hasidim is so that you are naki baruch so that you are clean from god so that you don't chaloyi karela then you won't be called to judgment and in the book he brings many examples in the torah and in contemporary german life about ways in which people are held responsible for laws and behaviors and feelings and thoughts that they might never know so this was a very controversial uh, and very hard program to adopt, and mostly the Jews of his time did not adopt it, but there were there was a following, there were some that were considered chassid, the Ashkenaz, that did follow his guidelines and his prescriptions. So that was one part of his ideology, his whole realm of law and custom and behavior that was uh, on the radical extreme side. They had a doctrine of prayer, which was different than our doctrine, in the sense that he speaks of kavana, intent and davening, but this kind of intent is not the meaning of the words or can- establishing a connection with the creator. Rather, it's mystical. Uh, the Hasidic Ashkenaz were heirs to a very rich mystical tradition that they claimed stemmed from Babylonia was brought through northern Italy and came to Germany through the Kalanamite family, a very aristocratic and uh, good lineage, uh, sort of blue bloods of Ashkenaz. And until that point, it was held secretly, but already his student, Rebellez of Worms, publicizes this mystical doctrine that they had. It was filled with gematriot, with numerology. And part of the numerology was when they would pray, they would figure out how many letters there were in certain prayers and what was the numerical value of the uh, words in the prayer. And based on the numerical value, it would have associations with scripture, with other verses in the Bible and with mystical allusions. And they had to have all this mystical intent while they prayed. You can imagine their prayer was very elongated. Mm -hmm. We already have, um, you know, long prayer was something that uh, goes back a long time in Jewish history. There were many who opposed, many, um, Sefer Hasidim speaks about Rabbim Gedolim, many great rabbis who rushed through the prayer service and didn't let the Hasidim Ashkenaz pray in the manner in which they do. And they're often in conflict with others about which synagogue to go to because they need to pray in this elongated manner but there's a lot of push against them so they had this whole doctrine of prayer which was unique to them they had a very elitist attitude towards charity feeling that they could only that the number one priority was to give charity to the members of their group the chassid ashkenaz and another seminal feature of their ideology was their tshuva doctrine the doctrine of penance and here we depart from the Maimonidean introspective type of repentance where somebody regrets their actions uh, verbally confesses it privately in their prayer and then takes on never to do that act again it's not an internal introspective act rather it follows it mimics the christian doctrine of penance which meant that there was a a feeling and there was an attitude there was a uh, canonization in medieval christendom at the time that sin was viewed as a debt that uh, man owes god a huge debt that they cannot properly repay and the only way to pay it back so that they don't get punished in the afterlife was to subsume Upon them, or assume upon themselves harsh corporeal um, penances, which were acts of suffering in order to sort of pay back uh, for the type of sin they committed, for the enjoyment that they gained from sin. It, it, it sp- the the type of penances were supposed to be equal in time to the amount of the duration of the sin. And this was a heavily this was heavily uh, monastic influence. And it was the, the monasteries and the monks that had a very uh, detailed kind of system of penance in which each penance was calibrated exactly to the sin that was committed. And Rabbi Huda Hassid imbibed this doctrine of penance and advocated public confession to uh, pietist sage in the same way that others were were supposed to perform confession to their abbot or to their bishop later it became part of christian doctrine into mainstream christianity and he imbibed this because he felt that sin was this terrible um, sin uh, debt that man owned god and it could only be paid back through these harsh corporeal acts and just to give you an example of the kind of uh, actions we're talking about here, excessive fasting, self-flagellation, which was beating oneself with uh, with whips or uh, rods. And this was something that was practiced openly in public spaces by mendicants, by friars. It was something the Jews would have seen being performed. Um, he speaks about immersing oneself in icy water in the in the winter time which is a specifically irish monastic penitential procedure in order to vanquish desires in the summertime sitting among bees and vermin so that person literally gets stung wow. and these kind of you know very hot, even casting fire on one body on one's body in extreme cases Um, excessive fasting, we're talking about months on end, but it doesn't mean not eating and drinking, it means that they would abstain from wine and meat for long periods of time aside from Shabbos and Yantiv they understood that, you know, they didn't want to violate halacha in that sense Um, but this this penance doctrine which seems so extreme was actually struck a responsive chord in medieval Ashkenaz it was one of the only doctrines that was particular to Hasid De Ashkenaz, which enjoyed, if you want to use the word enjoyed, longevity. In other words, their doctrine of prayer was not adopted. Their Retzon Havore was not adopted. Uh, Their elitist attitude to Daka was not adopted. They wore special totes, special prayer shawls that were specific to Hasid De Ashkenaz. The Maharami Rutenberg mentions it in one of his chuvos. That's how we know about it. The talitot of the Hasid De Ashkenaz. Uh, So they had their idiosyncratic practices and really did not catch on uh, in medieval Ashkenaz except for the doctrine of penance. And probably the reason it did was because living in Christian Europe in such close proximity to the religion of the other, religion was a cultural manifestation in the sense that there was no secular culture. There was only religion. That was how... You know, even though they were violators of religion, it doesn't mean everybody was religious, but religion religion was the the cultural landscape of medieval Europe. And Jews and Christians lived in very close contact with each other geographically, socially. Um, They had Christian wet nurses nursing their babies. They had Christian women working in their homes. They uh, kept Christian ritual objects as pawns for the loans that they extended to Christians. They were in and out of uh, each other's houses as were commercial relations were close. So obviously, they, they spoke, they communicated. Culture was transmitted on the local domestic level. And it was also open in public spaces. One could not avoid seeing the ritual and religious practices that Christians were doing. The theology of the Christian Bible was literally plastered on every cathedral and every monastery within view of the jewish the jews that lived in that town it, you know historians refer to this architecture as the bible of stone uh, most medieval people were illiterate so the only way they got catholic doctrine was by viewing the churches literally plastered all over it and we have record in Sifrei uh, Halacha of the discussion, can Jews look at the Christian uh, you know, sculptures because they are they have religious doctrine on them and we have a, a ruling in the name of, we think it's Rashbam Rabbi Shmuel in his town that he allowed that it wasn't a violation of Al Tifnu El Halilim the Torah says you cannot turn unto idols, they wanted to know are we allowed to to look at these church uh, structures, church sculptures, which is all outside the church. And Rabbi Shmuel rules that it is not a violation, which means that Jews were aware of it, Jews saw it, and it was inescapable. And there were pictures on these churches of the final judgment, what it was going to be like when God judged at the end of time. And there were very scary and detailed and vivid pictures of of the damned going to hell and the elect going to paradise and all the specific tortures were visually depicted on these church um, sculptures. And in addition, there were tales that were being circulated about what we call otherworldly narratives and uh, visionary literature in which a certain individual supposedly was taken on a tour of the other world where they saw what is happening in heaven, hell, and paradise? And they got vivid descriptions of the type of tortures that were going to be enacted on sinful souls. And even though these you know, journeys and these church sculptures were speaking about the final judgment at the end of time, supposedly post-resurrection, medievals often conflated the time periods and understood it to be immediately after death. This was going to be what was going to happen to them. So I, I think that the reason why the doctrine of Tshuva was the only one that stuck with medieval Ashkenaz was because they were literally bombarded with this image and this ideology of what, how how heavy sin is, what a burden it is, and what kind of punishment will await them if they don't atone for their sin, and the type of atonement that was culturally uh, visible was this type of physical corporeal punishment for sin that was the atmosphere in which they were raised in which they uh, saw and they understood that or they believed that sin could only be uh, you know atoned or expunged fully if they would adopt penances and we have record uh, of Jews approaching rabbis in, in halachic literature and asking them for this type of penance and they're responding. The Hasidic Ashkenaz themselves produced what's called penitential tracts in which they itemize each sin to be committed and the type of appropriate penance that matches that sin. And we, we see record of it, this idea of going into ice in the winter, uh, excessive fasting, flagellation. All these elements that were particular to Hasidic doctrine entered into mainstream halachic literature through Rebel Lazar of Worms. He he appended to his halachic work the Sefer Rokeach Hilchos Tshuva, and his Hilchos Tshuva reflect of Yehuda Chas's doctrine of Tshuva, and entered mainstream literature in that way. And successive uh, rabbis in Germany. We have record of the 15th century where Isaac of Bruna is giving out penance according to Hasid de Ashkenaz when the Jews are expelled from Germany in the long 15th century into the early 16th century. They take it with them to Eastern Europe, the Maharam Milublin. Uh, we have record of him meeting out this kind of uh, Ashkenazi penance and it goes all the way, continues until about the 18th century. There we finally find that it loses its sway. The ideology that must have, you know, held it in sway has now given way. There's a famous tshuva by the no de Bi Yehuda in the 18th century in which he says somebody has approaches him and asks him, you know, he wants to... He wants to expunge the sin or atone for the sin that he has committed, a very grievous sin. We don't know exactly what it is. And he asks for this doctrine of tshuva and the node of you. And he, but he says, I'm very weak. I don't think I can withstand the type of uh, fasting and and uh, self-inflicted suffering that I should be getting. Can you recommend something a little a little softer for me? And the node of you who responds that, I don't feel like I should respond at all. In other words, there's no source in all of the Talmud and in all of the uh, rabbinic literature for this type of tshuva. He says we have a concept of fasting for sin, but not excessive fasting, not fasting prescribed for specific types of sins. And all the sperm that talk about it have no shoresh, she says, have no root and halacha and each Success of safer, builds on the previous one, and he doesn't feel comfortable uh, prescribing tshuva s- the, the tshuva of Hasid de Ashkenaz. But I think in the end, he gives him something to sort of satisfy him, although we don't know what that is. But you see already that halachic opinion has turned away from it, and it's in about the 18th century that it dies out. And what's interesting, we have a little bit of a vestige left even today. I don't know if you recognize, if you know the Tefillah that's said on Yom Kippur, at least Ashkenazim said, I don't know if Spardim do, there's a Tefillah called Tefillah Zaka that was written by Rav Avram Danzig, I believe he's the author of the Chay Adam, And he writes in this Tefillah Zaka. there's two lines in which he says, really, God, we're supposed to fast for every one of our sins. And we're supposed to and we're supposed to inflict uh, suffering upon our bodies Chuvas hamishkal, according to this proportionate penance, which was one of the key doctrines of the Chassid the Ashkenaz that one had to suffer in proportion to the type of sin committed. However, we are weak nowadays. We don't have the koach. We don't have the strength. So please accept our fast of Yom Kippur in lieu of all the fasts and uh, afflictions that we really owe you. So you see that it, it really left a lasting impression in the memory of Ashkenazi Jewry all the way down to the 18th century, even though it was no longer practiced at that time. So that is the longest running uh, effect of Hasid the Ashkenaz. As far as Sefer Hasidim itself, it did have a, di- a wide diffusion, but there's a, a caveat here. The very first manuscript of, Has- of Sefer Hasidim and of the f- four out of the seven extant manuscripts that we have was a watered-down version of Sefer hasidim In other words, whoever wanted to copy it, and we have evidence to think it was a French, it originated in the French school because there's all French glosses and and, and other reasons to think that, removed all the idiosyncratic extreme views of Yehuda Hasid out of Sefer Hasidim. So that was left, what was left in it was real piety with a lowercase p. In other words, it wasn't the extreme doctrines that we spoke about. It was more what my professor, Dr. Chaim salvation would call garden variety piety. In other words, <laughs> loving God, fearing God, um, the importance of learning Torah, sort of mainstream kind of piety and all these very extreme doctrines of the hidden will of God and their doctrine of prayer and tshuva, instead of the tshuva that they recommend, the Maimonidean tshuva was inserted. So You see that there was many who, who disagreed uh, with that approach. And it was this um. The, it was this Sefer them that was circulated and that was reproduced because uh, as I said four of the seven completely removed all these all the gematrios were taken out so that four of seven were completely free of these doctrines and the remaining three had it was a composite manuscript in which the garden variety piety was first and then the end, of the, do- the end of the document had, the end of the manuscript had more of the uh, extreme views and the extreme passages. And we only have one manuscript that has the entire Sefer Hasidim sort of as it was originally written. And that is the second printing of Sefer Hasidim in 1891. The first printing was in the 16th century of the more mild Sefer Hasidim, and that's the one that circulated amongst Ashkenazi Jewry. So that the, the book itself, as it stood, did not really have that much influence in, in terms of uh, longevity.
0: Fascinating. All
2: right. Okay. So, can you explain your scholarly approach in your work? Can you can you explain your the the approach the scholarly approach that you take in writing mm-hmm. your book?
1: Okay, so the scholarly approach I took was really one that I got from my mentor, from Dr. Chaim Salveitschik. And it really was twofold. One aspect, and this is something he believed in very firmly, is that you have to read and know what's happening in the outside environment. Especially in medieval Ashkenaz, as I said, the Jews were so embedded in the Christian society in which they lived. All of my... (laughs) First readings were all about the uh, cultural environment, all about the doctrines that were changing in the field of penance, in the in the afterlife, uh, in monastic culture, so that I got a an, a well-rounded uh, understanding of what was happening in the outside world. And then the second training that I had was how to read rabbinic literature which is often traditional. How to read an ethical work like Sefer Chassidim, which uh, seems to repeat uh, well-known and well-used uh, uh, Talmudic statements, rabbinic statements, terms uh, like, um, like for example, kavanah and Tfilah. What does that mean? That could mean many things, right? How to understand what is the specific uh, meaning that a, a Sefer, in parts, that's different from everything that was beforehand. So I, I, I got the skills as to how to read traditional rabbinic writings and to see where an author is saying something new when he's going against the grain of a text, uh, and and then you have to understand why. Why is he departing from the traditional or literal understanding of a Talmudic passage or a verse? or an ethical statement. And part of what I do in my work is, I noticed that when it came to the realm of the dead, there were ghost tales in Sefer Hasidim. There were fascinating stories about people who came back from the other world and told about their suffering or their delights in the afterlife. This seemed to me something that I had never seen before. I never heard about before uh, in all of my uh, knowledge of Jewish learning and Jewish education. So the ghost tales intrigue me. Where are these stories of the returning dead that come to report about their fate in the afterlife coming from? And when I read in the larger literature of what was happening in Germany and medieval Christendom, not just Germany at the time, it was actually what was called by one historian the invasion of the ghosts. There were many ghost tales that were circulating amongst, you know, from amongst ordinary people. Some of them originated with ordinary people and were adopted by the clergy and others vice versa, but they were circulating in the environment. And people were coming back and telling about their state of the soul in the afterlife. And these were part of what was called exempla literature. Exempla are tales with a moral lesson attached to it. And there were literally thousands of these exempla that were being circulated, that were being said out loud in public spaces, in the vernacular. so Jews would have had access to them. And in fact, the example that are told in Sefer Hasidim have parallels in these Christian stories. And in in two occasions, the Chassid tells you that this is about a non-Jew. So it's clear that he's aware of these stories. And what he does with them is he adapts them for his moral agenda. In other words, he creates the moral lesson of the story based on what he wants to communicate to his readers. And all of these stories reflect the fear of the afterlife, which is a newfound phenomenon in in Jewish life. In other words, if you compare rabbinic literature with what we see in medieval Ashkenazi literature, you'll see that there's a shift in emphasis even though the Gemara does speak about Gehenna, it does speak about Eden, but it is in equal proportion or even outweighed a little bit by discussion of what's called the post-resurrection society, Trias HaMaisim, the res- resurrection of the dead, Olam Haba, the Gemara. There's an entire chapter in the Mishnah that deals with who is going to merit Olam Haba, the world to come, and who, which ideological and practical deviants are not going to get a portion in the world to come. So when you sort of assess the weight of the evidence, much more time and energy is spent on discussion of the post-resurrection world rather than the world immediately after one's death. And and there are many terms like la cid Laveau, the future, Or olam haba, which shift in meaning, which are ambiguous. You can't really tell from the context. Are we referring to the period immediately after death, or we referring to the collective fate of the Jewish people at the end of time? When you come to the medieval period, even in halachic writings, Ramban writes a Sefer Shar hagmul, where you could see that medieval Jews have shifted the focus almost emphatically and. And um, uh, determinately in favor of the period after death, and that was also part of a broader change in society in which death became no, became understood not just as the collective fate of all the faithful, but this idea of the individual afterlife and the individual uh, su- the individual life and individual. Fate after that the soul of the fate after the fate of the soul after death. And this was something that intrigued and uh, occupied the minds of all medievals, Jews and Christians so that you see it's reflected in these tales of the returning dead that, uh, that I that I research and that I analyze. And when I do that, I do that not just in the immediate setting of Christianity, but I also compare it with the Tosafot. How did the Tosafote view the same traditional text that the Chassidim Ashkenaz are viewing? So I contrast it with contemporary opinion, and what I what the the, the picture that I saw at the end, sort of, a, if you look at everything in total, was there was this bifurcation: medieval Ashkenazi Ashkenazi Jewry imbibed a lot of cultural. Uh, Lessons and cultural ideas from medieval Christendom. Fear of the dead. We'll talk about the sinful dead, the holy dead. uh, Certain beliefs that they too imbibed. This concern with the immediate fate of the soul after death. And then there were areas where Hasid the Ashkenaz were even more extreme in their adoption of Germano-Christian ideas. And there you see the contrast between the Tosafist conception of rabbinic teachings on the afterlife and the Ashkenaz's conception. So they were even more pronounced in what they imbibed from the environment, whereas medieval Ashkenaz was more, so to speak, conservative in what they imbibed. But they imbibed fears and, and conceptions uh, like their Christian neighbors as well. They thought in the same way as those around them.
0: Very interesting. So, Chazal were no strangers to using the dead in their didactic tales and anecdotes, most famously with Eliyahu Navi Avi, appearing to numerous sages. However, in Sefer Hasidim, this phenomenon takes on a whole new meaning and dimension. What are the differences between the Talmud and Sefer hasidim in their portrayal of the dead appearing to the living, and what have you discovered are the reasons for these differences?
1: Okay. So the Talmud records mostly great figures, holy figures that come back from the dead. For example, Elio Navi uh, features in more than 12 incidents within the Talmud. Now, technically, Elioha Navi didn't die. The, the Navi says that he was taken up in a chariot of fire, alive but if he would appear in the time of the mishnah or the gemara then clearly they would have perceived him as a dead person right because he hasn't he hasn't reappeared after being uh, taken to heaven so the reaction that one would have upon seeing elio would be equal to the reaction one sees when one sees the dead and in almost all the cases or i could say all the cases in which elio presents himself to a living sage in the talmud there is no fear elicited Eliyahu Navi comes to instruct. He tells Rav Yossi certain halachos that he didn't know, certain laws. You can't pray in the ruins. You have to pray a, a short prayer. It's the very first, one of the first pages in the Gemara and Brachos. Uh, this encounter, Eliyahu Navi. and it's a very cordial encounter. He's not, you know, he's he's grateful for Eliyahu's counsel, and he appears in to many other sages, and it's the same reaction. He comes to edify. He comes to save. He comes to advise. In one case, he comes to protect somebody. And this is despite the fact that Aliya Navi is a pretty uh, zealous, uh, strong personality, a Navi. And yet, when he comes back after the dead, you know, from the dead, he's a gentle. He appears as sort of a gentle soul. He's not. Uh, he's not giving criticism or rebuke. Uh, but we also find Rabbi Huda Nasi. Of Judah the Prince, the redactor of the Mishnah, there's a famous passage in Kesubos in which he was allowed to, he returns every Friday night uh, to sit at his place of study and to sleep in his bed. And his maid is not startled at all by his presence. And the only reason his visitation ceases is because she tells a neighbor, and then it would be embarrassing for other holy sages who can't come back to this world his visitation ceases, But there's no mention of fear. Um, you know. In, in, the, in his appearance. Um, there's one mention. In a certain passage. In which they bring. A, a certain halachic figure. To be buried. And a column of fire raises up. And that's the source of fear. Is because the fire appears. But not because of the dead person. That, that speaks uh, in that narrative. Then we have a few incidents. In the Talmud of ordinary people. Who go to the Chatzar Hamavis, who go to this courtyard of death, perhaps it's the cemetery, yeah. and they go to speak to deceased, uh, either relatives or people that they had a relationship with. For example, uh, in, a person named Ze'iri goes to the Chatzar Hamavis to speak to his landlady, who deceased, to find out where uh, rent money is placed, um, a, a certain uh, Shmuel goes to find out from his father where money kept for tzedakah for the orphans is, is placed. And in all these cases, again, there's no fear, even though the dead talk to them. In one case, they can see the dead, and they're always helping the living solve the problem that they have. Okay. By contrast, when you open the pages of Sefer Chassidim, you 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 meet an entirely different world. Anyone has in contact with the dead is terrified. Sefer Hasidim gives advice what to do when one is confronted with a dead person. And this dead person can change forms at will. He can appear as an animal. He can appear as a beast. He can appear as a cat. He can appear as a human. And and he says what you should do is you should invoke the name of God in an oath, which is a very serious sin in the pietist canon. You never take God's name lightly. So it shows you the kind of trepidation that one felt when one was confronted with, with a ghost. And if if a person is afraid to do that, says the author of Sefer Hasidim, then he should supplicate before the ghost, he should pray before the ghost and pray before God that he should not do him any harm. So it's it's a, a terrifying experience in which he's afraid that the ghost is gonna harm him. And Many passages speak about the same thing. If a shade, the demon appears to somebody. and similar ways are suggested in terms in, in terms of warding off their harm to show you that they were viewed equally as dangerous. and Ravu thehas even tells you how do you distinguish between a shade and a dead person? How do you know what's, what, what's which is this body because they appeared bodily? The body of a dead person and what is really a shade and this fear of the dead is something that uh, we find in many of the stories of Sefer Hasidim and we find that it was even in the halachic literature of the time for example we have a compilation of legal rulings and customs of Rav Shlomo of Neustadt in Austria in which It was a conjuration. We have a text of an oath that was administered as part of a funeral ceremony done with the minyan, the quorum of males, in which they made the deceased swear not to harm the living with body, spirit, or soul. And that it bound the deceased to stay in his grave until the resurrection. Otherwise, sanctions would occur to him. And this oath was to be pronounced in Hebrew and in the language that the dead was familiar with when he was alive. so words, it was to make sure he would not leave his grave and harm the living. We have uh, hundred uh, also in Germany one and a half centuries after safedim the mahariel is recorded as pronouncing a similar oath over a grave wow. that the dead should not wander, he shouldn't harm any Jew or Jewess again, to be recited in Hebrew and in the language the dead is familiar with. And what underlies this fear of the dead coming back to life and harming the living is a Germano belief, a Germanic belief, meaning it's pre-Christian, of what's called the dangerous dead. The dangerous dead were either those who were evil during their lifetimes, criminals, murderers, enemies or people who experienced an untimely death, those who died prematurely, died in childbirth, or were killed, suicides, anyone who didn't get a, br- a proper burial, the belief was they would return and harm the living. And this was a sort of instinctive belief that was passed on through centuries uh, in this environment in which the Jews found themselves, and they imbibed this fear of the dangerous dead. And we have evidence in the Mahser Vitri, a, a uh, Jewish Ashkenazi customary, which records the customs of the time. And you could see how how the belief changed from a fear of Shedim to a fear of the dangerous dead. There's a prayer called the Magen Avos, which is said at the end of, the prayer service Friday night in the Gemara in Sachem cites the reason mishum sakana because of danger they're afraid people will come late to synagogue and they'll be left alone in the synagogue and therefore they extended this prayer so that the others would stay with them when the late comers would finish their prayer and the reason that cited in Talmud is because this uh, demon called igras bas machalas had free reign to harm people, along with her 180,000 Malachi Chabala, these uh, angels of destruction. And there's a 12th century addition to the Mahs of Vitri, which sort of replaces what the, the Talmud cites as the reason for Maginavos' institution, and says it's because of the dead who occupy the synagogues on Friday nights when they're free from Gehenna. And this underlies Another Ashkenazi belief in what's called the Sabbath rest of souls. They believe that those who went to Gehenna and suffered there, they got respite. They got relief from the tortures of Gehenna on Shabbos. So that now they could sort of be free. These evil dead are in Gehenna are now free. They're out of Gehenna uh, over Shabbos. And on Friday night, they come and they occupy synagogues and they could harm these latecomers. So you see how instinctively in one passage you have the mention of the, the reason that the Talmud cites for the institution of this prayer and it segues without seamlessly in the mind of this Ashkenazi Jew who adds the Machs Vitri, the idea that now the dead occupy the synagogues and they're harmful. And they took this very seriously in the Tzavaa, the ethical will that's attributed to Rav Judah the Pious and the Tzavah is most famously known for the Ashkenazi uh, imperative: uh, "Man cannot marry a woman with the same name as his mother." That's probably the most uh-huh. well-known uh, and lasting dictum. Dicta from uh, dictum from uh, this ethical will. But the ethical will also talks about burial procedures that if there was a woman who devoured children during her lifetime, they believed in in werewolves and vampires, and if they found this woman that her mouth was open when they would bury her, they said, you have to fill her mouth with dirt, because it is known that within the first year of her, her death, she will come back and devour children again. So they had to stuff up her mouth to prevent the return of the dead. And this is interesting because the archaeological evidence that we have from medieval cemeteries show us that there was such a profound belief in the return of the dangerous dead that they found bodies that were sewn into their coffins, that were dismembered, that were decapitated. All kinds of uh, their hands and legs were bound. And this was because they feared the return of the dangerous dead. And, you know, halacha, Jewish law, does not permit mutilation of the body. So here you have an example in the ethical will of Rabbi Judah the Pious of a sort of Jewish twist to preventing the return of the dead. They couldn't decapitate the woman. They couldn't, uh, you know, dismember her, but they could stuff up her mouth. And they did that to prevent her from coming back and continuing to devour children. Sefer Hasidim also mentions that when there's a plague in the city, it was common practice for them to um, search. They would exhume the bodies and to see if any of them were not properly buried, if the, the shrouds had withered away or there was some impropriety in their limbs because they felt the dead would bring vengeance. If they weren't properly buried, they would bring They would wreak vengeance on the town and bring plague to the city. So this was a common method of trying to stem the tide of a plague, plague, thinking that it came from the returning dead who are vengeful. Uh, We have a mention in the Sefer Leked Yosher, again, of uh, a rabbi in a customary of Wiener Neustadt, which is in Austria, that women who died in childbirth and priests were buried in whole coffins, as opposed to coffins that had the bottom plank removed. Normally, the Jewish burial wants the body to touch the earth so that in in fulfillment of, you come from the dust, you return to dust. But they found that in that town, women who died in childbirth were put into whole coffins. And the belief is probably underlying this is belief in the dangerous dead. Even though the women aren't evil, but because they died an untimely death, they feared they would come back and harm the living. So they put them in whole coffins so that they couldn't escape yeah. after death. Fascinating. Um, really
0: crazy stuff. Yeah.
1: Example. <laughs> so you see that, uh, I hope I answered the question appropriately, that uh, the visitation um, from the world of the dead was one in which they it was something to be feared and their customs relate to that. Uh, even when they tell of exempla that sort of have a standardized form by the 13th century, these stories were retold so many times that the details were left out. And the first line in almost every exemplar exemplum, is when a, when a dead person appears, he says, do not fear. That's That's sort of the standard line. And you can even see it in Shakespeare's Hamlet, by the way when the ghost of, uh, of uh, Hamlet appears, the first thing they said is is they're afraid. They, they wanna cross themselves, which was the way that they protect themselves from harm from the dead. So this is a very long lasting belief uh, in medieval Europe, down to the time of Shakespeare, that uh, people still were afraid of the dead. And in Ashkenazi, world, it 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 uh, sort of flowered itself, it, it, it flourished, it grew, it took on different proportions in that people were afraid of the summoning of the dead. If a dead person appeared to you in a dream, it meant that they might be calling you to die and you had to, uh, out loud you had to say, I don't want to die, I don't want to join you, it was forbidden to hold the hands of the dead, it was forbidden to kiss the dead, uh, people didn't want, did not want to occupy themselves with making shrouds because anything associated with the dead might be an invitation to death. Uh, Sefer Hasidim reports uh, to its chagrin that people at the time, Tamid Chachamim were not studying Masechet Moi Katan, which deals with Avelos, with the laws of mourning, because they were afraid that if you voluntarily study the laws of mourning, that's an invitation to death. So the fear of the dead had very, cast a very wide net. People were afraid of of, of dealing with the dead. They had very hasty burial, Seyf Hasidim says, because the the quicker the body would decompose, the less chance it would reanimate itself and come back. Uh, People stayed away from uh, doing anything with the dead. Now, this is just a theory that I have. I don't know if it's true, but I grew up with Eastern European parents and I was told that I'm never allowed to walk in the house while they're alive without shoes because that's a sign of mourning. And I have a feeling that it has something to do with this instinctive Ashkenazi fear of, of invitation to death. If you, if you in any way hint that you are involved or, or you know, want or are okay with a practice that's um, something of mourning, having to do with mourning or death, that was an invitation to death, and it was it was to be feared and avoided.
2: You brought up uh, Masachet Moed Katan, right, which deals with the veil. If I'm not, I could be mistaken, but if I'm not mistaken, I think even today, um, like, I think that um, many writers will say, like, don't go too much biyun in Masechah in, in and Mod Katan, or like when you do uh, the available part, you do it like the cute and like fast, if I'm not mistaken. Isn't there like that type of attitude that's kind of still there? I just remember offhand, like I'm just trying to remember because I, I remember something about Mod Katan, like don't go too much into it or don't like, you know, uh, only if you're, like, learning for, you know, to become a post should you really be mitasek too much in, right? I, I'm not mistaken, right? Am I, I'm, I'm...
1: That's what Seif Hasidun quotes that. and says, there are many who say we should rush through maway Katan and we shouldn't spend time on it. He discusses that and he he calls it a mace mitzvah, um, sort of the neglected tractate that, that everyone who does, you know people have sort of a, a, an obligation to study it because it's neglected. And he says the reason for its neglect is because people mizpachadid, he says, in They're afraid of the dead. So he, he spells it out. And that's probably where it comes from.
2: Interesting. That's so interesting. Because right now I'm thinking about it, and I remember a few times in yeshiva where this actually was like brought out, like like not, not, not to learn it, but like, you know, just do it fast, or do it like, you know, just, you know, just go through it, don't be too much like the Eun. like, you know, I just found that very interesting with what you just said. Okay,
1: anyway. probably the origin of that.
2: Probably the origin, okay. Mm -hmm. So, shifting from the dangerous dead to the sinful dead, um, the idea that the sinful dead come back to earth as punishment for their sins is completely absent in Talmudic literature. Yet, in Sefer Chassidim, this phenomenon is introduced to us in Numerous passages, which details their returning in earthly form and even posing a danger to the living, which you were you mentioned you touched upon before. What is the source of this phenomenon in Sefer Aksedim, considering its complete complete absence in earlier Talmudic literature?
1: Okay. So the source of this is a mutation of the dangerous dead. In other words, the dangerous dead was a pre-Christian belief. And when Western Europe underwent Christianization, the church modified or channeled this existing belief for its own purposes. And what it did was, it mitigated the fear of the dangerous dead to wreak havoc on the living and and channeled it into what they call the sinful dead. That the reason why the dead are disquieted, the reason why they come back to earth is not to harm the living, but because they haven't gotten atonement, proper atonement for their sin. And, and therefore, they come back and they, they, they come back in a form in which the, the violence that used to be performed on the living is performed on themselves. And there are visionary accounts and there are uh, exempla which detail how the sinful dead appears on earth suffering uh, penance, suffering punishment for the particular sins that they committed. For example, um, or Derek Vitalis, an Anglo-Norman monk, tells a very detailed account of what's called the Troop of the Returning Dead, which was an old um, pre-Christian, then Christianized notion of uh, what was called Heliquin's Hunt, that there was an armed group of soldiers that never did full penance for their sins and they return and walk the earth endlessly uh, with great pain and great difficulty in atonement for their sin and he sees this vision of different groups of dead women who sinned priests that sinned knights that sinned they all walk according to their sort of social class and the The sin that's associated with that social class is is obvious through the punishments that they endure. For example, the knights who are known to be rapacious and murderous of peasants, of others, of church lands, they appear with the instruments of their trade, their weapons, their horses, their spurs, all on fire. So that they're burning perpetually, they're bleeding, they're crying, they're wailing. they're moaning, and they're they're forced to wander the earth endlessly uh, in search of atonement. And these visions permeated uh, the consciousness of medieval peoples, right They heard about it. Uh, there were spottings of this. This was told um, and they this belief that People walk the earth in atonement for their sin was absorbed by the Chassid the Ashkenaz. Reb Yudah in Sefer Chassidim recounts tales of whole uh, of the dead riding wagons, being pulled by other dead, wailing and moaning. Uh, for their sins and he asks the, the person who cites this who sees this sight asks why who are you and he says we are dead and we are suffering for our punishments and they ask him what type of sin did you commit and they said we we committed sins with women and they have this sort of Sisyphean type of punishment where the ones on top rest and the other ones pull them and then after a certain amount of time the ones that are pulling the wagons go on top, and the other ones continue, and and it sort of continues endlessly, and not just that he cites the story, but he cites the story and appends scriptural verses to it, proving that this thing could happen, that wicked people are compared to animals, because now they have to pull wagons like animals, and uh, the fate of the wicked, uh, he brings verses that connects them with wagons. And he 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 um, presents it in a way in which he's identifying with this type of punishment. And he actually increases the list of sins that people commit can, can be punished in this manner. Even though the people who are actually interrogated, the dead, say it's for sins with women. He adds on, anybody who acts like an animal in this world will suffer this fate. Anyone who mistreats his animal will suffer this fate. Anyone who puts undue fear upon the living will suffer this fate. So he expands the categories of sinners who will experience this fate. There are other stories that he tells of single individuals who are walking the earth, carrying a very heavy load, um, and, and are also crying in pain. And when they're confronted by the person who sees them, they asked them why where are you why are you suffering and they said and this person says because I stole a certain piece of land and of course I stole an object now I am perpetually uh, doomed to wander the earth and we have parallel stories that were circulating in other collections of exempla that tell of a certain person who was seen by another person and it, it gives us a name of a person in the, you know, in the, in Germany. I think I can give you his, uh, his name. Eric Burke, citizen of Andernach, who was, uh, who meets his dead Lord, Frederick of Kel, and sees him carrying this burning hot sheepskin and a very, and a heavy load of earth. And, And his servant asks him, why are you doing this? He says, because I stole a certain, Uh, this sheepskin from a widow, and I took a patrimony that didn't belong to me, and now I am meant to suffer, uh, you know, to suffer in this way. And this is not to say that the the Ashkenaz did not believe in Gehenna. Gehenna is the sort of main uh, place for the punishment of the wicked after death that appears in rabbinic literature. And Gehenim is always associated with fire. The Mese Korach, those who die from the Korach's rebellion against Moshe, appear in a Talmudic passage. Uh, a certain individual, Rabbi Barbachan, is walking in the desert, and a certain guy takes him to a spot in the earth. And he says, Here you can, uh, you should know that the dead of Korach are buried underground here, and there's smoke coming up from the earth. So in many statements in rabbinic literature, we we understand that Gehenna is subterranean. It's under the earth and there's fire. And that's how the punishment of the wicked takes place. There are other opinions. One opinion talks about the slinging of a soul uh, in a slingshot.
2: Yeah,
1: Afakela based on and Shmuel. Uh, another opinion is that Titus is ashes where uh, Titus was burned and his ashes were scattered over the seven seas. That's another type of post-mortem punishment that the, the Talmud speaks about. But neither one of those is sort of the accepted opinion, and neither one of those is terrestrial. None of them talk about the dead walking the earth uh, yeah. perpetually after death. So that's something that's peculiar in particular to Chassid the Ashkenaz. And you could see it was taken from the environment in which they lived because there were circulating tales that he clearly adapted and adopted to his Sefer. Uh, Rabbi Lazar of Worms, Halachist, you'd be surprised. He speaks in his Hilchos Yom Kippurim in his Laws of Yom Kippur. He lists the type of posthumous punishments that a sinner can endure. and He lists Gehenna. And he also says those who are tired out by walking on a thorny path. He believed in this post-mortem walk of sinners. And in his other sefer, Chachmas HaNefesh, there he speaks about how sinners who sin the same type of sin during their life will walk together in groups on earth. Very similar to that vision that we spoke of earlier, or Derek of Vitalis, that describes the different social classes and their sinners and their particular sins, walking together in groups in a procession. And he says that they will be Navinad, they will wander, like the biblical Cain, which is an interesting association because Cain was a murderer who himself was murdered. So he's, he's a sentence to be Navinad, to be a wanderer, sort of like the bad dead. But of course, his wandering took place during his lifetime. The novel idea here of the of Rebelloz of Worms is that he understands that this punishment will take place after death. That those who sin will wander the earth incessantly in the categories of sins that are similar to theirs. In other words, the sinners that sinned as they did. However, he said, they'll only do this six days a week because if they observe Shabbos properly, it will not be made to violate the tchum Shabbos, he says, which is the um, the uh, the distance, right? The certain amount of cubits that a person is not allowed to walk past on Shabbos. The dead will not be forced to walk on earth on Shabbos to violate the tchum Shabbos. So it just shows you how real these beliefs were for him that the dead conform to the halachic categories of tchum Shabbos, notwithstanding the fact that the Gemara says that the dead are chavshim and a my right? dead do not have to observe mitzvahs. But in his mind, this was sort of, you know, instinctive, that uh, the dead did this walk, and that they would not be made to violate the tchum shabbos, if they observe shabbos properly in their lifetime. There was a lot of midah. a lot of, uh, the way you sinned is the way you're punished. So, in the same mentality, if they observed the mitzvahs, they wouldn't be punished in a way that reflected their observance of the mitzvah. Fascinating. Um,
0: and, and, and to add to that, I think it's interesting that probably over a few centuries later, with uh, Lurianic Kabbalah and all these ideas that um, this whole idea of rolling in the snow that we you were mentioning before, um, and even this the idea of appropriating the Mida keneged Mida to reincarnation, um, to reincarnation yeah. uh, tends to happen then in, in the Kabbalistic circles, so it's kind of a it's appropriated from this. Clearly, it's appropriated. So I, I find it to be very, very interesting. Um, and on the next point, I wanted to bring up because in the Torah, it's it's very apparent that the Torah um, opposes anything that has to really do with uh, the rights of the dead and kind of distances us from the dead because the, the priests in the Torah are forbidden to go near the dead, whereas all other pagan religions, they that's how they conjured up the spirits and they took advantage of people. The Torah makes draws a big line in the sand. We can't do that. Um, and not only that, we don't know where Moshe is buried. Like, death culture is really not Torah culture. In fact, the Torah doesn't even mention the afterlife. It barely mentions anything or alludes to it. So. Interestingly, the Talmudic sages viewed the cemetery as a place devoid of sanctity Mm -hmm. and the living were forbidden from observing the commandments in the presence of the dead buried there. Sefer Chassidim, on the other hand, portrays Jewish burial sites in a way that reflects the notion of a cemetery as a holy place, which we see a lot of people do today. What should we make of this dichotomy? So
1: it too, I believe, is a function of the absorption and again this is an unconscious absorption in other words people weren't making a conscious decision to imitate gentile ways this was a subconscious absorption of you know religion as culture again that that um, they saw a a certain way of behaving in a certain practice and it and, and it became part of their mentality and we see this in Sefer Hasidim. We see this with the martyrs. The martyrs, especially of the Crusades, right? The Rhineland martyrs in 1096 who gave up their lives rather than be baptized to the point that they committed suicide in advance so that they wouldn't be uh, baptized and even killed their children so that they wouldn't be baptized. And there's sort of this quasi. Um, you know, quasi, uh, how should I say, very weak halachic ground to allow child martyrdom uh, to kill one's own children and to commit suicide. In these cases, the Rambam is somebody who opposes such behavior. But the Tosafists provide a very weak halachic basis and and permit it post facto, of course, but they permit it because in the psyche of medieval Ashkenaz, the martyrs were, the holy dead, They're, uh, they occupy a very large place in their consciousness, way in, out of proportion to how they appear in Talmudic literature. There is some veneration of martyrs, the Asara Haruge Malchus, the 10 that were killed by the Roman empire. There were those Haruge Beitar and Haruge Lud, the martyrs of Lud and of Betar um, that were spoken about, but we don't find a veneration of them the same extent that we find him in evil Ashkenaz. There, were, there was liturgy that was created to commemorate them. There were fast days created to commemorate them. There were memorial books in which their names were read out loud. And this weak post facto halachic justification for the martyrdom, they um, translated itself into a veneration of the martyrs. There was a halachic opinion that martyrs do not need to be mourned for because the belief was they went straight to Gan Eden, uh, they would not go to Gehenna at all. So there's no need to sit shiva for them. There's no need to have aveilus for them. Uh, the psyche was that they had their special portion in the afterlife reserved for the martyrs, and we see this in one of the ghost tales of Sefer Hasidim, in which a uh, a would be would be martyrs feel badly that they weren't. They wanted to give up their life. Uh, al but circumstances made it that they didn't have to and the passage in Sefer Chassidim says don't worry anyone who made up in his heart to commit martyrdom will be will will be vouchs- vouchsafed a portion with me in my partition meaning speak, a, a real martyr is speaking here in other words they will get that special place designated for martyrs in the afterlife So martyrdom assumed veneration, Ashkenaz, way out of proportion to what it does in the Talmud. And even though the Talmud speaks about certain burial caves reserved for, they have for uh, judges and for um, pious people, um, the regular kind of of pietists, of pious people, there is no burial cave for martyrs. There is no specially designated uh, place in the cemetery for martyrs. This changes in the medieval period. First, we have these ghost tales in Sefer Hasidim about, uh, one of which tells that a non-martyr uh, bones fell into a mass grade of, of martyrs. And one of those martyrs, comes back in a dream to the members of the town and say, we can't tolerate this person in our midst. This is just not a wicked person. This is just a non-martyr. Shows you that they venerated uh, the burial place of where martyrs were because they wouldn't tolerate any non-martyr. And this is a direct reflection of the uh, exemplar literature that we have in which Christian saints Also, come back and tell the living that we cannot tolerate the unworthy buried in our midst. Now, there are examples of this in the Talmud. There's an example that's brought up from prophets in which um, a certain wicked false prophet gets buried hurriedly, falls into the grave of Elisha, the prophet when the Moabites are advancing and they don't have time to dig him a grave, he sort of ends up on his grave and he's brought back to life by Elisha. And then they take him and they bury him elsewhere. Uh, But here you have a prophet with a false prophet. In in medieval times, we have martyrs with non-martyrs. And these non-martyrs are not wicked. And in the case of Sefer Hasidim, it's, even more pronounced, because the Christian exemplar, the saints that don't want others buried in their midst, are renegade sinners, are, are usurers, are, are people who are, what we'd say, you know, heavy heavyweight sinners, whereas in the ghost tales of Sefer Hasidim they're just non-martyrs. They're not uh, necessarily wicked people. And then the flip side of this, we have a ghost tale in Sefer Hasidim in which a certain uh, female martyr uh, is, is she's ca- her body is carried on a cart, and this is the way they carried the mass dead to the cemetery with other martyrs. And her body falls off the cart, and she appears in a dream to some you know living person in the town and saying, "I want to be buried with the martyrs." She doesn't just demand that she wants to be buried because her body falls off and and doesn't you know get to be buried, but she asks to be buried with the martyrs. And in Sefer Hasidim, this person, uh, you know, promises a reward to anyone who's going to find this body, and somebody finds the body, and she's brought to burial with the martyrs, and then the story ends that the dead woman comes back a second time in a dream, which is very common in the example literature, and tells this person where a certain treasure is buried, so that he gets rewarded for having made sure that her body gets buried with the martyrs. And this idea of the martyrs having a holy burial place is not just in the ghost tales. Um, we actually know that in 1186, a mentally ill Jew murdered a Christian girl in Neuss nice, Germany. And this became an uproar in, in amongst the Christians that a Jew killed a, a Christian. And the murderer was buried alive. Other Jews were killed. Others were forcibly converted. And then they took the bodies of the Jews that they killed and they tied them to the wheels of wagons and they left them outside for 40 days. Oh, my God. And the Jews in the community finally got access to their bodies. They didn't bury them in the nearest Jewish cemetery. They ferried them up the Rhine, a distance of 100 kilometers, so that they could be buried next to the martyrs of the Crusades, 1096. So they felt that these Jews died the martyr's death because they were incriminated because they were Jewish. Right? And they suffered because they were Jewish, and they wanted to achieve for them a burial with the martyrs. And... This Rhineland mass grave in Zanten became known as Rabbi's Valley. And up until the late 17th century, rabbis sought burial near the martyr's graves. And we have evidence also that there's a, a person, an, a Jew named Alexander Wimpen, who spent an exorbitant amount of money to redeem the body of the Maharami Rutenberg. And he died in, in jail. And he he... Paid a lot of money to get his body uh, exhumed and brought for Jewish burial. And he asked in return to be buried next to the Maharami Wittenberg. He wanted to be, he writes on his tombstone so that he could be next to him in paradise as he is next to him in the earth. And this concept of what is known as the holy dead, the martyrs being the holy dead, was a very Christian concept. It was the concept that the saints uh, could plead for ordinary Christians in the time of the final judgment so that anyone buried near them would sort of share in their sanctity would would be able to uh, secure for themselves a favorable outcome in the afterlife by being buried in proximity to the saints. And the saints were originally uh, martyrs. Early Christianity only the martyrs were saints. Then Christianity extended it to any holy person in Christianity, especially if they could perform miracles, was considered a saint. So the idea of, of the martyrs and Ashkenaz becoming the holy dead, and and then the space around them was called holy space, was something that was uh, unique to the medieval period, and it was something the Jews un- unconsciously absorbed in the sense that they couldn't imagine <clears throat> that their holy dead would be any less holy than the Christian holy dead. In other words, Jews always, Jews and Ashkenaz had a very strong self-image. They felt that they were the true religion, and they were as holy or holier than their Christian counterparts. And there was a lot of religious competitiveness and tension uh, in medieval Ashkenaz. So even though they're sort of absorbing uh, unawares me- you know christian notions they understood the holy the way they did but they always felt that their holy was holier than the christian holy if you would so it was never a conscious decision to be like the gentiles it was more a one-up men, like we are as holy as you are and then some and and that's how you should perceive i think uh their actions and and the sort of the final uh you know, nail in the coffin, uh, so to speak, is that the first time the cemetery is referred to in halachic literature as admas kodesh comes from a German halachist, um, you know, from the medieval time period. That's very telling that they understood the cemetery as admas kodesh because wow. the. The martyrs are buried here because the holy are buried here becomes Admas Kodesh. And, and you should pray there because it's Admas Kodesh. So That is very much a medieval-inspired medieval uh, understanding and that has held sway until today.
0: And I think the development of like sainthood, even in Judaism, it clearly kind of follows this trajectory. It's uh, a life of because its own. yeah, it's taken a life of its own. It's almost like, The rabbis have become more and more saintly and more and more infallible, whereas the Talmudic characters and rabbis in the Talmud are very much uh, imperfect, and that's the whole point—the reason why we learn from them. So it's very interesting that, like the superculture, how much it influences the um, subculture—you know, it's it's pretty apparent. So that was really eye-opening. And for the last question, we just uh, wanted to get into. Uh, sin, penance, and purgation. If you want to, sure. You. Because a very unique picture
2: emerges in Sefer Hasidim more than any any other area in your book. It is in this, in these matters, in where it veered away from, if not contradicted, Chazal in in a very blatant fashion. What was the rabbinical attitude towards sin and penance in contrast to Sefer Hasidim? And to go even more in depth, it seems that the cultural influence in these matters were highly specific. You explain in your book that it's not popular Christianity, which fuels Rabbi Huda Hasid's ideas in these matters, but you attribute it to a very localized and specific influence of an early medieval pre-percatorial penitri- penitent tradition that still persisted in Germano-Christian society of his day. Can you elaborate on this?
1: That's a very loaded question.
2: Sorry, long-winded. <laughs> very
1: long chapter in my book, but I'll <laughs> do my best uh, to uh, summarize it. So there is no official doctrine of sin, penance and purgation in in rabbinic literature. As you could see, it's um, a lot of different uh, dictums, dicta that are sort of scattered all over. And I did my best to reconstruct them to come with some kind of uh, cohesive
2: mm-hmm.
1: formula and the mainstay position, um, the position of Rabbi Akiva, that's cited in the Mishnah in Edios, which is considered bechirta. It's the it's the one Mishnah that's considered uh, we always paskin based on the Mishnah in Edios. It has a sort of special status in halacha. Uh, Rabbi Akiva says that mishpat rishon begehenna yud beis that the sentence, sort of the outer limit sentence for the wicked in Gehenna, and here we're talking about the period immediately after death. Is a maximum of twelve months. Uh, obviously, there were uh, the, the Gemara speaks about more wicked uh, sinners, sinners that are sinners of the grievous, most grievous sort that didn't believe in Tchias Hamesim or uh, denied fundamentals of the faith, uh, or were sinners who caused the public to sin, like Yeravim ben Nevat, right, the, the biblical uh, king of Israel, who. Set up the two golden calves that became a stumbling block for all of Israel. Uh, these very heinous individuals and certain very heinous crimes called Hoshe Yisrael Begufan, certain crimes would render one have a sentence that's eternal in Gehenim, right? Uh Gehenem Kalim Vehemeinam Kalim. That Gehenim would would end, the Gemara says, but they don't they don't end. Their punishment doesn't cease. So aside from the very heinous sinners, most Jews, and, and, it, and sort of the accepted opinion was, a 12-month duration. And yet we find in Sefer Hasidim that that is not the case. Uh, there are two tales that tell of somebody who comes back from the dead who has already died many years. And he appears to the living, and his face is all black, or his face is all green, and, and the living person asks him, why do you look this way? And he says, because I'm suffering in Gehenna for... Uh, I'm suffering in Gehenna. And the living person asks him, Well, why are you suffering? And he says, Because, and in each case, it's never a very uh, large sin. It's not murder, it's not adultery, it's not uh, denying the fundamental of the faith. It's always a sin according to pietistic doctrine, meaning what we call supererogatory behavior that's demanded of the chassid and of the Jew who doesn't know yet. Um, for example, he said the brachos and benching, you better be careful, brachos and benching and um, and uh, and tefillah without proper kavana. And here he doesn't mean mystical kavana, but he says that he had his own pleasure in mind and not the pleasure of the creator. And so this is a very high level sin. And yet he's coming back from the afterlife to say that he's being punished for it. And then the living person says to him, but... I thought, and here he's paraphrasing Rabbi Akiva's position, that the the wicked in Gehenna only suffer Yud-Beis-Chodesh for one year. How is it that you're there many years? So he answers in a tosafist like response. Well, the other years were not as harsh a punishment as my first year.
2: Uh That is his response. (laughs) So
1: he's an educated ghost. And he's also a ghost that parallels similar stories in the example literature. There, there is a story about a usurer who dies and is, has to suffer in hell for all eternity. And his widow uh, gives alms and prays and says masses perpetually on his behalf. And he comes back. He's also, you know, looks like he's been tortured in, 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 in hell. And he says that she's, And he says that um, I've been suffering for seven years now. It's very harsh, but your prayers have been helping me. And the last seven years, I've been suffering less. So he also makes this distinction between his first set of years and his second set of years. And then when she continues to pray, then he doesn't come back at all as a sign that her prayers have helped. So you see that the influence of What was believed to occur, that people could suffer for very long periods of time in the afterlife, was something that was absorbed by Seyfer Hasidim. And you can't build an argument on one tale. He has another tale in which the same thing occurs. And in addition to that, he makes statements, outright statements, that one should be careful about uh, injury to one's soul, because he, he creates a kal v'chomer, if one is so worried about injury to a body, how much more so should one be worried about injury to a soul, which will suffer uh, afterwards, a yisurim, a pain, she so chiker, that is endless and bottomless. So he outright says that the suffering of the soul after death is going to be eternal, and he never makes a distinction about the type of sinner that's going to suffer this, he has many other, uh, several other ghost stories in which people come back from the afterlife suffering with no uh, determinant end. He has these uh, ghost tales of Heliquin's hunt that we talked about, this army of the dead that walks the earth. And they work the earth seemingly endlessly. There is no end in sight to their torment. And here he differs from even what, what I was called the Current theology of Christianity, because what happened in the 13th century in Western Europe uh, was what was called the birth of purgatory. It was the rise to prominence of a middle state between heaven and hell, in which some souls could achieve uh, atonement after death if they didn't uh, achieve pen, they didn't fulfill their penance completely for their sins on earth. And this was a, how should I say, a revolution in thought about sin, punishment, and the afterlife in Christianity, because until then, most people felt they were condemned to eternal suffering. It was the very few who would be saved and everybody else who who would go to hell, literally, and be damned forever. And the ability to have purgatory, in which there was sort of a menial type sin, it's called the venial sin, actually, which wasn't a mortal sin, and that they could have a finite amount of suffering, and they could be aided in the suffering through the prayers and the alms and the masses uh, performed by the living on their behalf injected an o- uh, an air of optimism of hope for many many christians at this time and the ghost tales about the afterlife predominantly were people coming back to ask ask for help from the living so that they could get out of purgatory that was the most common exemplum that appeared in the Middle Ages. Now, if you look at that and you and you compare that to Sefer Hasidim, which has ghost tales, which has borrowed ghost tales, which clearly tells you it's taking information from the example literature, talks about non-Jews and their stories. And yet there is not one exemplum in which somebody is coming back from the other world and asking for help. Nobody has helped in the stories of Sefer Hasidim. That is very telling. So it, and we have statements from Reb Shmuel HaChasid, his father, in which he also says suffering in the afterlife is beyond, uh, is, is eternal, can be eternal. And Reb Yud says that we should pray for sinners after their death beyond Yud Beis Chodesh, beyond the 12 month period. After their death, which was not the practice in Ashkenaz. Ashkenaz only prayed the Kaddish prayer for 12 months. Well, actually, they do 11 months, right? So they don't assume that they're the most wicked. But it was not beyond a 12-month period. And Rabbi Yehuda Hasid says, for those sinners who did not observe Shabbos and Yom Tov properly, and again, this is a pietist definition of not observing Shabbos and Yom Tov properly. This doesn't mean they violated the thirty-nine forbidden uh, malachos uh, 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 prohibitions of the Shabbos that the rabbis made clear to us. Rather they did not observe it with joy. They only observed it with sadness. Those people you should pray for every Shabbos and Yom Tov, even past the Yud Beis Chodesh wow. says Rabbi which shows you that he believed in eternal punishment. He believed that people will suffer eternally And they are not renegade sinners. And he makes this clear um, in a comparison that in in another paragraph, where he talks about the reason for kisoy hadam. Why do we have to cover blood when we shecht an animal? And he says, because there's a great accusation made at the time. The animal didn't sin. And yet you're murdering him and spilling his blood. And the person who's shechting him is somebody, he says, who's filled with sins like uh, like blood is red and crimson. And how can we expose blood of an animal that's sin-free by someone who's sinful? And therefore we have a mitzvah to cover the blood. So he perceives as people as, as, as um, being mired in sin, not being able to come out of the burden of sin. And that's why they can suffer eternally in Gehenna. And therefore, what is his suggestion? How do you get out of this? the doctrine of penance, of, vol- of suffering now. Better to pay now than suffer later. And he goes a step beyond uh, penance for sin, which is something that Ashkenaz adopted, or parts of Ashkenaz adopted, and he says you should employ voluntary suffering. You should suffer uh, with even having nothing to do with sin, just in case, just to forestall this dreaded punishment after death. And Rashmul HaChassid says says that you should do not follow this in your child rearing please that you should um, educate your child towards suffering by giving him small doses of suffering while he's young so that he can handle it when he grows older and they go on to say that um, the majority of Jews will spend some time of Gehenna that punishment in Gehenna in, in paradise exists And that even if somebody sins one sin, they will suffer for that in Gehenna, along with others who also sinned in that regard. And this is something that outright contradicts uh, rabbinic teaching, because rabbinic teaching is that somebody who's only rovavonos, who has a majority of sin, uh, will go to Gehenna. Whereas, uh, according to Judah Chassid, even one sin will make someone go to Gehenna. And he will go there together with others even if he has many mas and told him and mitzvahs to his credit. So he does not, uh, he's not buying, he doesn't feel bound by the idea of ro vavonos, of having a majority of sin. Um, and where does this stem from? I think this stems from an absorption of the Christian doctrine of, of original sin and the theory of, it, uh, the ransom theory of atonement that um, only a very great man can, can, through a lot of suffering, can help atone for the sins of a person. An ordinary human cannot really atone for all his sins. Uh, Rebbe Lazar of Worms, in his uh, penitential, uh, prescribes penance for an adulterer, a male adulterer, and he, he, he prescribes him a very harsh regimen that he has to fast all the days of his life except for Shabbos and Yantav, which again means no meat and wine. He has to bathe in icy water one three times a day um, all the days of his life. Uh, he has to live with a, a hair shirt, which was common to monks and penitents, a very coarse shirt against his body, and do this all the days of his life, and maybe God will forgive him. This is the mentality that the Hasid, the Ashkinah have. Ashkenaz have have towards sin, and then I contrasted it with the Tosafists, who who understand the same Talmudic statements that speak about punishment in the afterlife, and in each case that the Gemara speaks about eternal suffering. The Tosafists understand it in a way which reduces the sentence of eternal suffering, okay? and that's very complicated. I can't uh, you know describe it here sure. in this forum. But it just shows you a point of contrast where the, the Tosophists reduce the amount of time spent in Gehenna, embrace uh, openly statements that say the Jews, the fire of Gehenna will never show late, will never have dominion over Jews and compares them to a remon, which has so many, so many seeds. So two Jews are Malay and Mitzvot kirimon. Uh, they take this at face value. This is a statement that never finds its way into Sefer Hasidim. Uh, they, um, they, um, they believe there's the Shabbos rest of souls, and even those that are in Gehenna uh, will rest there. And then they say that all of the decrees, even eternal punishment that the Gemara prescribes to certain very wicked individuals, if they do tshuva before they die, none of this will apply. So they have a very uh, optimistic outlook towards uh, the Jews and their ascent, their ability to do tshuva, even in the case of an adulterer uh, that si- sires a mamzer, which is something that Reve- Elazar of Worms was talking about in his case, uh, that said he could never really get atonement for. The Tosafists are able to say that, you know, even if he has a mamzer, if he does tshuva, He'll restore the breach with Hashem. He can do tshuva. Uh, we have evidence from the gravestones in medieval German cemeteries that around the 12th century, aside from the normal uh, inscription that said, kavod, that his soul will rest with the kavod, which is the shechina, we find that's the first time that Gan Eden appears Uh, in a sizable way on the tombstones and a that reflects the new medieval consciousness about the immediate afterlife, right? The the afterlife immediately after death. And one historian feels that it was the Jews sort of counterclaim to the Christians that we Jews, we go straight to Ghana then we don't need to go to purgatory first. Mm -hmm. Um, And this was sort of the, the dichotomy that medieval Jews live with that, they felt as a whole, Jews were superior to the Christians and they are going to go straight to Ghana, then they are not going to go to Gehenna. And if you look at the Jewish tours of hell, which exist at this time, they describe the non-Jews as suffering in Gehenna and the Jews either don't go there or only the very renegade Jews go. And one of them says, even Yeroban ben Nevat will get out of Gehenna because he was associated with David Hamelach, or so and so, so they they show an optimism and a and um and a feeling that the Jews will not suffer in Gehenim. and yet you know, sort of individually, there were Jews who still felt the need to to pray for their deceased relatives to make sure that they weren't suffering in the afterlife, and, and of course, there was the extreme position of the Hasid Ashkenaz that most Jews will suffer. For very long periods of time and eternal punishment is extended beyond rabbinic categories of sin. And I don't think that really had a following, that that extreme mindset, um, even though the doctrine of penance was, was adopted. But that extreme uh, you know, belief that went against rabbinic opinion about the afterlife sort of remained uniquely theirs.
0: Well, this was so eye-opening, and for everyone listening, again, the book is Final Judgment and the Dead in Medieval Jewish Thought. Thank you so much for joining us. I mean, hopefully you inspire people to get back to the fundamentals of Judaism. I think this is what how what we got from it. Yeah. So um, thank you so much, and uh, hopefully, you know, one day we get to do this again.
2: Amazing. Thank you so My much. My pleasure. I really appreciate everything. Thank you.
1: You're welcome.
0: Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning into the Judaism Demystified podcast we really appreciate all your support and your feedback if you want to help us grow the podcast keep spreading the word share it with your friends, family or whoever you think would be interested we also opened a Patreon so you can become a patron contribute any small amount you'd like which would really help us grow the show Um, our Patreon is www.patreon.com slash judaism pretty easy to remember thank you again and we hope to keep putting out great shows for you guys